0: Lynn, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you.
1: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Podcast. This is the Thunder Dome. It is the Thunder Dome.
2: <laughs> I've never felt more confident of someone stepping into the Thunder Dome than than Lynn. I'll be honest. I did not I did not
1: <laughs> yeah. wear my Mad Max outfit though.
0: So. Oh. <laughs> yeah.
3: Next next time. Next yeah, time Next I'm mentally, we'll do... I'm
1: mentally leathered up. So
2: next next year <laughs> I want to actually build like a pseudo-steel cage. You come dressed as like Tina Turner, and we're gonna have you and Matt Huber on stage debate. <laughs> you know, Marx versus Hayek, public power versus, right. versus private markets.
1: Can I dress like Wonder Woman and have my you know riv- yes. my wristlets to find off his Marxist critiques? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, those who've been around for a while might remember that Lynn joined us way back in the COVID, sort of early COVID days when we were doing meetups via Zoom. Um, I think we talked about transactive energy. It was so Mm -hmm. long ago. I feel like things have evolved so much just in those like two years. Um, We did dub Lynn queen of electricity markets at the time, um, (laughs) which I only just remembered. Um, but then also hope uh we get
1: to retain that I,
0: I think it stands, yeah. Certainly.
2: <laughs> yeah. For yeah. now. Clearly. Yeah. No one's come um, for it yet. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm interested, um, Duncan, in hearing how you think things have changed in the ensuing two years, because sometimes it does feel like in our industry, like you're just on a hamster wheel and not going anywhere.
0: Well, yeah, that that's definitely true too. I was actually thinking, just from a dirtiff perspective, the like mm-hmm. weird niche body of knowledge we've <laughs> built up has changed, and I think all of us like have a lot of the same views, but they're kind of a little different too now. So it'll be fun to revisit this stuff. Um, also, those who went to Dervos will remember Lynn from our second panel of the day. Uh, she was on a panel with Jesse Jenkins and and Andy Frank. We just released it um, uh, in the second week of February. Uh, for those who want to listen to it um so probably a number of people listening to this episode will come fresh out of listening to you on the panel um so we figured you know previously we did a follow-up with pierre uh lafarge from spark fund to talk about his view of kind of a utility-led planned and financed uh dervolution and uh this might be i don't want to say a counterpoint but a different perspective. Um, and that's kind of how we plan the panels back at Durbos too, but this will be a fun opportunity to kind of dig in there. Lynn, we'll start with our uh, favorite little intro fun questions. Um, oh, quickly, I'll introduce you too. Uh, we're so bad at this. We always forget to do this. Lynn's <laughs> the director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics at Northwestern. What is that?
1: Uh, the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics, IRLE, uh, has since 2004 have been providing an annual workshop for public utility commissioners and staff. And we focus on the foundational concepts that we think regulators need to bear in mind to improve regulatory decision-making, especially in the face of dynamic and unpredictable technological change, which definitely characterizes our moment. And we, so this workshop, it's regulators only. So it's not like going to a NAIRC meeting where, you know, you are bombarded by, uh, from public choice economics, you're bombarded by special interests, including the regulated interests, (laughs) uh, messaging. uh, You're not bombarded by tech companies trying to, you know, get their product in front of the regulators. It's regulators talking to regulators and faculty and, very experiential kind of small Socratic seminar um, lots of reading so it's like having a, a graduate student seminar essentially and it gets them up out of their daily docket weeds and gives them an opportunity to reflect on why they do what they do the way they do it and whether what they do is sustainable compatible with technological change and enabling innovation and increasingly whether it um is consistent with a future vision of maintaining safety reliability and affordability and adding resilience and low and zero carbon as objectives for electric systems
2: cool that's Um, Do you, do you consider academics a special interest group?
1: Um, Lynn's really pulling the strings behind the
3: entire country over here. Yeah, I mean, like if you, if
1: you ask, if you were to like put out a referendum for, uh, you know, we should have uh, increases in taxes to support greater funding of research, you know, I think you disproportionately see academics <laughs> voting yes for that. So, right, okay, you know, gotcha. We are, you know, public choice is the field in, in political economy that uses economic tools to study non-market behavior like voting. And so one of our main hypotheses is that people act in their own interest and so academics are going to vote for that for sure.
2: <laughs> okay, great. I was just <laughs> testing you on the, uh, yes. you know, incentive <laughs> questions that I'm sure we'll get into uh, in the uh, in this episode.
0: Cool. So Lynn, we want to start by asking, uh, when did you first get derp-pilled? And if that phrase isn't familiar, we mean... Have
1: I been? I been know, no, no, she knows, yeah. she knows. She
0: I knows.
2: I know. Yeah.
1: Have I been? Um, I'm not... I I I'm not sure I have been. I mean, I'm I'm definitely wait. How is that
2: true? Aren't you like <laughs> prices to devices and stuff? Like, I am
1: prices well, price and prices from devices. Yeah, right. Right. So, but what's interesting? It didn't start for me as a kind of DER. Um, you know, the fact that that markets are DER enablers. Mm. Um, it was not my primary kind of my primary focus. So your market pilled.
2: So, so, you're you're just the yeah.
1: I mean, I'm 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 a I'm a one note Mary. I'm like you know markets <laughs> markets are the best feasible institution for enabling people who have a variety of different objectives to coordinate in a decentralized distributed system. And so at that general level, I'm totally dirpilled whether it's energy or not. Because <laughs> it's all sure. about decentralized coordination.
0: Yeah. Okay. So your your philosophy first and the fact that DERs are sort of emerging at this time and yeah. so relevant to that is almost secondary or a, a nice coincidence, and, maybe. Ah, uh, that's good.
3: Did did one of them come first, like markets versus energy? Were you like really interested in markets and then you're like, whoa, energy is messed up, or did it just all together? it was totally
1: ever since I took my first well I took my first econ class actually in high school and I'm old enough that my high school econ class was right when the PBS series of of the Milton and Rose Friedman free to choose book so the Milton Friedman free to choose PBS series was like hot off the press so so that was my high school econ class
3: and high school lynn was like yes and i'm like (laughs) this probably here for it but
1: um and then when i took my first econ class in college it just you know it grabbed me by the throat and said you will do this you will do this i just the ideas and then um i did as an undergrad my undergrad senior honors thesis was on electricity regulation Mm. So I the messed it. up energy, so but in it, thing, yeah, the messed up energy thing followed pretty quickly on the yeah. market
2: thing, yeah. But wow, that's uh, I can't, you know, it's it now it seemed shocking, but now it seems so consistent that being dirt pilled is like an emergent, an emergent outcome of your interest in markets.
1: <laughs> that's a very so. meta observation, Jake.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Something I think is interesting is I remember during the panel you kind of described. Yeah, this perspective, uh, at one point you said like, I think like pink haired punk, Mm -hmm. uh, right, this idea of kind of, you know, perhaps historically, electricity regulation has been Mm -hmm. very top down. And this would be like disruptive and shaking things up. And, or as James used to say on the pod, I think, like, let it get freaky. Um, And that's so interesting to me, because if you kind of like zoom out in this broader moment right now, I think there's. A lot of young people who don't see like markets and prices as punk, they mm-hmm. see it as kind of like stale. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is just, I don't know, powers, power meaning electricity. Well, that's not- funny.
2: I mean, Lynn, can we talk about how like libertarianism was captured by corporatism at some point or or, or what?
1: Um, I know we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, but it's not yet cocktail hour. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm <laughs> so I'm not really ready to talk about a subject that painful. Um, yes.
2: <laughs> <okay>. <laughs>
1: but I will say it just since since you did drop the L word, I want to give a reading recommendation. And and I know I mentioned this a, a few a few essays ago on my Substack, but I'll reiterate it here for anyone who's interested in kind of the intellectual history of libertarian ideas, going back through to the late 18th century forward. Um, two of my friends, John Tomasi and Matt Zwolinski, wrote a book that came out in the spring called The Individualists. Mm-hmm. And it's a great well written book. Easy to read, really cool history of uh, an intellectual history of libertarian ideas, and some of it is very free market, of course, and some of it is very communitarian, which I think does kind of mm-hmm. get us back into the Pierre Lafarge category, because I think his his framework for thinking about things, you know, he'll call himself a libertarian of sorts, but but it's in more of this kind of libertarian communitarian. Thing. And but but the book the individualists will, will if people right, are interested so, kind of so give kids, a good
2: kids do your homework yeah I would maybe summarize it as like that. the the Koch brothers and and you know Alan Greenspan are maybe not the bastions of, of libertarianism <laughs> that uh, they they've been uh, you know people well, have claimed I, I, they are
1: <laughs> I think they also well I don't know Alan Greenspan personally so I can't comment on him but. I'm uh, only
2: looking at his actions. So I'm not nothing about that. him personally.
1: But I do think that a lot of that, that some just the nature of the kind of culture and the, the very politicized polemic vibe means that um, both, say, the Koch folks and the Soros folks get tagged with more yeah. than they actually deserve. Yeah. Yes. In terms of both praise and criticism. I would right. say. Right. Right. Yeah.
2: They, start, um, they, they seem they, sing they sing pretty, the pretty similar kumbaya. to me. I don't know. I, I think they got similar <laughs> <Yeah>. vibes.
1: <laughs> no, I'm the whole hand sing kumbaya. I'm like, you know, yes, you know, it's all it's all kind of <laughs> There's good and bad. These folks do some good stuff and some bad stuff. Those folks do some good stuff and some bad stuff and your job as a person as a functioning responsible individual is to think critically about what all these different people are doing and weigh it for yourself so
2: yeah or right, we had to start like with the the high level there before we could talk yeah. about power markets
3: <laughs> well okay or well no. it's like we still have one more intro question right I, and i <laughs> which is i know like so we can't skip it um and i'm gonna i'll put it like a little twist so we have what's your favorite dirt? and i'd say like or just transactive energy device like maybe it's not a dirt i don't mm. know
1: um i i used to i um back in the back in the origin days of transactive energy so mid 2000s you know 2005-6 my favorite and and I would yeah, I had a, a piece of it and I would like wave it around when I would, was giving talks um, it was from the Gridwise Olympic Peninsula project where we we basically developed transactive energy. There were two parts of the project and one was the contracting and automation to thermostats part that I was on. And then the other part was just full on engineering, and it was this chip that would go in water heaters. And it would sense the voltage and frequency. Um, uh, and I think it's a, it was a, uh, is it f- I, I'm going to say frequency when I mean voltage, I'm sure to get it wrong. Cause I'm not an engineer, but it, uh, f- voltage excursion, right? If, 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 it, if it went out of range, there's like a plus or minus 0.05 range around voltage, right? And um, and if the or maybe it's frequency. I think it's frequency because <laughs> now I've got the sine wave in my in my head. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you go out of range on the frequency, um, that it would um, if you needed to use less electricity to bring it back into range, it would turn off the the heater coil and the water heater and, and vice versa. So it was this automated, just this completely automated, you know, really, really, really micro level, what we would now call a grid forming device of some sort, Mm. right? Because it could just, it could change the behavior of the device to bring it back into to bring the frequency back into range. Um, there's,
0: I feel like there's a cohort of like DERs, prices to devices, transactive energy people for whom the answer is always water heaters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Pierre's answer was actually water heaters as well. Yeah, I know, I was like, I loved wow. that. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm, I'm pretty much on water heaters. Um, they're, I think they're kind of like the utility infielder right? Mm-hmm. You, you, they can do lots of stuff, but do it in a very, you know, unobtrusive way. And it, then, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing, but they're really clutching there when you need them. Right. Cause they're always there. Yeah. They're always on. Um, actually in my, in my last house, we had a on-demand water heater and I have to admit now, you know, I want I want a big old 50 gallon, but only as long as I can use it essentially as a battery. Right. Cause that's yeah. a water heater is basically a battery.
0: Love it. Love it. Yeah. The tankless heaters, I guess are cool in some ways, but it's, it's a bummer to lose out on that, that capability. Cool. Um, cool. Well, let's get into it then we have our two out of the way. Um, I recently listened to your panel to generate some questions and thoughts and, uh, a simple place I wanted to start with, because I feel like it's very sort of like foundational to your worldview, is you mentioned being a bit of a technological determinist. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear what that means and then how that gets applied to this moment.
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, it's a very thoughtful question. Uh, it, So I, I I guess I come to you know, DERs and transactive energy and stuff through this path of being an economist. I have a background in economic history I'm, I'm trained as an economic historian, uh, focusing particularly on history of technology and history of institutions. So, you know, things like regulation or, you know, how do we, or, you know, market rules, market rules are an example of an institution. Um, and so, I, I have that historical lens when I look at the electricity industry. And so I, I always think it's useful to go back and understand, you know, I act, and actually I like going back into the 16th century and all the early English and Dutch natural philosopher experiments with, you know, plates and water and, but, um, but, even just the you know going back to edison and, and Tesla and westinghouse and and then coming forward from there. and i, I wouldn't say I'm one hundred percent deterministic about technology, but it does seem to me that that technologies are really important inputs into um, and I might even say, causal factors in shaping some of the subsequent institutions that we come up with mm-hmm. so like for example you know the the 1890s and especially tesla and westinghouse all the stuff they were doing you know with the um generators and you know the the kind of tesla's all of tesla's main patents around turbines and so on and the work they did in 1896 building the Niagara Falls um, power plant. And, you know, if you look at the pictures of of that turbine hall, and, you know, to us it's, you know, big equipment, yeah. You know, but, but if you're someone in 1896 you know, something that is 12 feet tall and there's 24 of them in this ginormous room underneath Niagara Falls, you know, that huge scale Mm
3: -hmm. is
1: unprecedented. And so, um, so I do think that the the technological change we saw in the late 18th or, or late 19th, early 20th century fed into the design of the regulatory institutions, right? So state PUCs come out of the combination of the desire to control and manage the physical and the economic um, outcomes of large-scale electric production. And so I think it's in that sense that there's like a temporal you Know the technological change comes and then the institutions are kind of imprinted on whatever that technology is, but then you know the regulations themselves kind of get engraved in stone and then only get tweaked here and there. And yeah. perhaps, you know, the Federal Power Act of 1935 was a pretty huge tweak, but oh man, that, we <laughs> I know we got go to <laughs> we, we got to get into that,
2: but before we do, I did want to. I just thought it's a good segue to even, you know, it'll be good context for the rest of the conversation, but I, I certainly have had the sense that like the, not even just the grid, but like our energy systems in general have been so dictated by thermodynamics, um, you know, whether that was initially the steam engine, um, you know, hydro, what you mentioned is actually quite different, but as you saw power markets later evolve, like coal and natural gas combined cycle uh the the desire to build at scale uh certainly comes from from some level of what thermodynamics tells us to do essentially to get the get the cheapest outcomes um and how like utterly broken that is by solar wind and storage um and um and uh what that's going to you know and that's just like obviously we talk a lot about the distributed nature of these technologies on uh on the podcast but we don't talk as much about the like non-marginal cost, not, not limited by like, actually the the distributed nature of them is downstream of the fact that they're not thermodynamic in nature, meaning like building, putting a solar panel on a roof and putting like a massive utility scale solar. You don't have a lot of the benefits of scale that you do in thermodynamics. So, um, do you like. 1 do you do you see that as as like as radical an idea as i do cuz i think actually that's where my entire outlook on the future of power markets comes from that principle i think uh and 2 like where what do you think that does to power markets over time like do you think these what is what what's the institution that get map gets mapped onto these over time
1: so you're a bit of a technological determinist too i think we're I, it's
2: much the same. Place. It's, uh, I, you know, I try and I, I, I welcome all the, like, especially on the pod, I I get all these, uh, diverse perspectives. And I think my sort of ideological leanings have I've gotten muted over time, especially I've like gotten out and started like building a company and stuff. But, uh, when I, when I, you reawaken a lot of these things in the always I think are a lot of what's core, what's core to me and my, my underpinning. So, uh,
1: I think, yeah, one of the, an example of a topic that I think about where this comes up is inertia, right? So, and, and again, caveat, not an engineer, but so this is my, I'm an economist, you know, I can look at the math and understand the math, but that doesn't mean I'm an engineer, um, but um, you know, inertia, those big, those big thermal devices and their rotation, when coupled with an alternating current system, it gives you kind of this, this physical push right that mm-hmm. is the heartbeat of of the grid. And one of the concerns about the shift to inverter based resources, um, you know, in, in many DER of course inverter based. Um, is what's going to replace that inertia, you know, because the way the grid is, is the, the architecture of the grid is predicated on a particular behavior of those big rotating generators. And so the kind of natural inclination is to think, Oh, well, we need to replace that inertia and, You know, this is where, you know, the economist brain comes in and kind of looks at and says, okay, in the existing grid with thermal generation, um, we're in a particular physical equilibrium. And what we need to do is get to a new equilibrium with a bunch of inverter-based resources where we may or may not need that inertia. Mm. You know, we can design it another way. So move from the old equilibrium to the new equilibrium. Uh, of course, the problem is that that transition can, transition can be messy, and when we're talking about electricity, of course, messy can mean um, dangerous and also outages. You know, dangerous being worst; it can kill you, or you can be out of power. You know, so those are kind of your worst. Um, so that that's an example of of what I think about are the kinds of questions we have to ask as we're moving. To a more diverse portfolio of resources, interconnecting with each other on this shared network, um, you know that that kind of physical equilibrium has to change, as well as all the economic questions on top of that.
2: I'm tempted. Do you have a Do you have a pity? Let's skip the transition. What's What's the end state? Do you have like a first principles kind of view on on where this all leads?
1: Um, I'm here, here I apply Yogi Berra and say, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future I have no, idea. <laughs> you're going, but-,
2: but, but you, okay. How about this? Do you think our existing institutions like will are, are like, hmm, how to, how to say this? Um, I often think so in terms of like, often institutions are able to adapt and like abs- absorb the, ex- the, mm-hmm. the change that's coming. And in some cases, they cannot. Like it's more like a punctuated equilibrium, or, or or what have you, and something entirely new exists. And so, do you are you confident that our existing institutions are are, are ready for this change, or do you think something like the, the it's hard to predict because it's like so different that uh, which you know kind of lends to say that you you don't think they can absorb it, basically.
1: I I do think I I'm I'm a firm I'm a firm believer in just as an empirical matter, in the fact that innovation and technological change seen over time occurs in a very punctuated way.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But it's kind of, and and it's kind of like um, what was, I think it was Ernest Hemingway's uh, comment about kind of being being poor and then being bankrupt is like, you know, it's, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Oh, now I'm bankrupt. It just, you know, it's fine. (laughs) And then it happens all at once. Um, and so I think in hindsight, you know, so ex post, we're going to look back and it will look a lot more, I think a lot more punctuated than it would otherwise, but ex ante. So now looking forward, um, just based on past historical periods of new technology adoption, successful new technology adoption is more bottom-up and is more incremental. And and so my concern from an institutional perspective, by which I'm going to refer to our, our kind of layered federal and state uh, regulatory and legislative institutions, as well as the, the business models, right? The utility business model that is conditioned on the regulation, right? Because the, the vertically integrated utility business model is a regulatory, you know, it. I mean, it's Thomas Edison's business model, but it got encased in amber starting in 1907 when we when New York and Wisconsin established their public utility commissions and then it really got encased in another thick layer of amber with the federal power act so you know you, you you have um and and this is back to the technological determinism right you have these like whoa these these companies are huge and you know they are producing more electricity than we could ever imagine and Um, We're worried that they're going to charge high prices like monopolists and take advantage of people, so we need to regulate them. Um, And then then that whole system of regulation plus business model get kind of codependently encased in amber and move forward. And what I'm concerned about is that regulation, because of the former regulation, rate of return regulation, you know, it gives utilities an incentive to maximize capital and to make sure that they do stuff that they can rate base because that's how they earn profits. When, for example, they could, um, we could smooth the transition more by investing in small scale, cheap, distributed, you know, sensors, monitors, DER, and then at the transmission level, grid-enhancing technologies like, um, you know, dynamic line rating and, and so forth and, you know, gets all the, the gets that mm-hmm. we've been talking about. <laughs> and um, And so my concern is institutionally is that those embedded incentives are so deep and so pervasive that it undermines the normal organic hey we can find efficiencies by doing it better faster cheaper mm. that you usually get when you have Schumpeter yeah. and, you know gales of creative destruction so that's my worry
0: yeah mm. when you when you first at, in in the conference mentioned technological determinism like the thought that came to mind was the you know mentioning that and saying you know therefore in each technological era there's sort of a regulatory and institutional construct that's going to make sense for it, it sort of immediately concedes that the ability to design a construct that's durable to technological change is almost unobtainable, <laughs> right? Like that we couldn't design such a thing that gets at such the fundamentals that, you know, any change in technology, et cetera, over time can be dealt with in our systems. It yeah, it seems like it sort of concedes that that's out of reach, and instead we have to, yeah, like have these like punctuated moments where we flip the system, change it, whatever. Uh, I just thought that was so interesting, um, and I don't know if that's like borne out in the history of things. I, I don't, I'm, I don't know this stuff, but that that's what came to mind.
1: One of the one of the origins of since James mentioned punctuated equilibria, one of just the historical origin of the idea of punctuated equilibria is in biology. And so it makes me want to circle around and ask you, Duncan. What, um, given what you just said, what if we rethink, reframe this to think about it from an evolutionary perspective? And so, if we view technological change as, as like an evolutionary dynamic, but that technology and institutions, right, regulation and business models, they, in a in a healthy You know system that uh emerges to enable humans to flourish they co-evolve and that means that as technology changes you know there's this kind of two-way as technology changes regulation and business models need to adapt to those changing conditions but at the same time when regulation and business models change that affects incentives to innovate so you got Mm -hmm. the kind of two-way arrow of evolution.
2: Oh, I have, I have,
1: with, with that.
2: I, I, I mean, Duncan, can I, can I tee one up for you in addition? So I was going to say that your counter, my counterpoint to your concern Lynn and why I'm not concerned is what (laughs) Duncan's company is doing in California. Um, which I don't actually remember like what the, um, uh, you know, uh, I've seen this once. It was like, it's like some, you know, one of those economics graphs, you may actually know what I'm talking about where like the price point of something being beneath lower than a monopoly, how that like breaks the monopoly. Do you, I see you nodding. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And we see that playing out effectively right now in California where essentially like the more, um, uh, you could say like, that feedback loop is the more brittle that institution is like call it you know the 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 they're not investing in the grid or they're starting wildfires they have to do these public safety power shutoffs the fact that ders exist or maybe the even the initial like impulse to create ders is in response to that and so duncan is going you guys and colleen are going to uh industrial loads that are basically like I have to wait two years to interconnect with the utility and they're going to charge me $2 million, or I can just build a microgrid. Two years would be and-
3: good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um,
2: or those that are just starting to get such a service that is so in- interrupted that they turn to the cost of a battery and solar, which, so there's something like being broken on that monopoly cost curve. Right. And so the more another way that I often view things like Duncan, we've talked about the anti-fragility of theirs before is like the more brittle the institutions get to the change that's coming, the actually the the more they accelerate it by uh you know, their costs will go up in the rate based model or what have you. Um, and so I don't know I, I'm translating just from conversations, Duncan and I in the past, like does that you know what I'm you know what I'm getting at, uh, Duncan.
0: Yeah, DIRS can be like cooperators or like aggressors. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like it depends on kind of like what the context is. Yeah. And but in like- that case, they're
2: aggressors. So they have a, they're like a, a release valve on the system, I guess.
3: Yeah. I don't know if I would actually even call that an aggressor so much as like, it's like adapting, adapting and like, cause in, in some ways, right. Like if you can give like utilities as like being, in, in some construct, like stuck also in like, in, in in their Amber model of like, how they have to do reviews, right? Like it's not set up for how you review DERs um, or how you would like put things onto the system. And so I think, or like the massive amounts of power that is now needed on the system, like at such a quick scale. And to the extent that DERs can like help remove some of that from the system or like keep a substation from being upgraded, um, and I'm not talking in like a non-wires alternative, like utility does a study, right? I'm talking like you're able to do something behind the meter, such that like what is you know actually connected to the grid and like the max you know output um, is such that they just don't need to worry about it, and it's you know a company like like ours, right, is is handling it on the back end um, to some extent, like yes, there's like some portion of the utility that's going to be like, okay, that's lost load for us and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not saying like from a high level company utility strategy, it's beneficial to them, but from like that department who's inundated with interconnection or DER reviews, like that release valve like actually is like yeah. adapting and beneficial to that mm. team. Right. Mm. And so I think there's like something interesting there around how, there is some efficiency gain that it's happening where it's like, yeah, other people actually like kind of could do this work. Now, should the whole model like need to be refigured out? And is it working particularly well because like DR interconnection is not exactly like a smooth process <laughs> um in most places. But but I do think there's like potential for it to both recognize the system and respond. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the cooperator yeah. and aggressor at the same but time. Like are it, just it can be answer. two things, a, not, be two things to, at once. <laughs> yeah, they they're not
2: trying have to make an anyone intention. Mad, you know? Yeah. yeah they're, they're just during. Sort of. Yeah.
0: I guess I just what I meant by that is they sort of can be like an agent within the system or just completely outside of it. Um mm-hmm. and they don't particularly care one way or the other. <laughs> they're just gonna do what makes sense in a given moment, you know? Um cool. Um so one, and I,
1: I don't want to go back to my pessimism, but I am going to go back to my pessimism because <laughs> I'm in general, in general, I'm a sunny optimist, and I am optimistic. So, James, I'm with you, but I, I do think that that some of the flourishing that we could achieve is attenuated by some of the this, you know, historical and status quo fi- friction that is not working out. You know, it's not kind of it, it. It's kind of you know gumming up the works. And uh, since you mentioned California and what you know what uh, Scale Microgrids is doing in California, the other the one example that concerns me. There are a lot of, ex- of examples in California that concern me, but the one I have in mind is um, when last year when Sonova. Uh, put in that that um, you know filed to basically mm-hmm. be the the local utility for this you know community that wasn't being served because of wildfire stuff and you know we'll come in you know we'll we'll come in with our solar and storage and we'll be we'll be the local distribution utility and it just got rejected like at every single level and all sorts of different organizations with different uh, positions, but the same kind of traditional mindset about what constitutes providing electric service, uh, just undermine what was a really potentially creative and valuable entrepreneurial proposition that could benefit people in in those communities.
0: Yeah, going back to the like biological analogs, you mentioned it's there was a very strong immunal response by the system to Excellent. what was perceived as a virus. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I have another counterpoint to that, which is if you just build it, who's to say that the CPUC can make that decision? But to stop it, rather. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's, I think there's going to be uh, interesting uh, additional cases that come along down the road from that, but. I, I mean renegade it does
1: microgrids huh renegade microgrids. oh hell
2: yeah renegade microgrids um so I do want to you've mentioned it
1: because you can make that analog to ride sharing right renegade microgrids would be like the electric version of uber and lyft we're just right. gonna come in and start operating and by the time everybody loves us you're not going to be able to get rid of that's us
2: right taxi that's lobby. right yeah um So with that said, I mean, you've mentioned it twice and I did want to make sure we talked about this. Can you just like educate the audience on what the federal uh, Power Act is and why it's such a thick coat of amber and what it means today? Uh,
1: I I will caveat this by saying uh, not only am I not an engineer, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, (laughs) Although I talk to a lot of lawyers and some of my favorite, We trust
2: you, Lynn. it's, It's it's Okay.
1: Some of my favorite research collaborations are t- projects where I work with engineers and lawyers, you know, and economists all together. So, um, so you have to kind of take what I say with a grain of salt because I'm just looking at it from an economic perspective and not kind of a statutory perspective. Um, but you know, pre 1935. You know, so if you go back to the early, like the 1900s, um, the electric utility industry was growing in a bottom-up way so you know you build a generator you build some wires you connect some some homes together it's all about electric lighting um it's hugely successful uh so entrepreneurs start coming up with electric appliances like washing machines and vacuum cleaners and and so on. So the the those first like three decades of the 20th century were amazing for using electricity to simplify our daily lives through appliances. Um, and, but at an organizational level, you know, the because of the economies of scale and scope in both the generation and the wires, you get all this entry like in, in Chicago, by like 1910, I think there were like 34 different electric companies operating. And so they're all having to throw up poles and wires and and build generators and and they all have to get a city franchise to operate. So this is pre-PUC. and um, But then because of the economies of scale, then the way they're competing with each other is lowering price, lowering price, lowering price, but you can lower price below average cost at which point you're not paying for all your generator and poles and wires and so someone who's not as good an operator will go out of business and sell their assets and their customer base to in that case Samuel and you know who you know consolidated all of that up to become Commonwealth Edison in Chicago and so you get this consolidation but it's a very bottom up building of the industry within cities and then towns, and then connecting between cities and towns and then connecting out to rural areas, um, which was very expensive. And so another part of the 1930s is the establishment of the Rural Utility Service to get rural electrification. Um, But it's all within state boundaries. But by the mid 1920s, well, by World War I, actually, and the, the war production in World War I, um, people were realizing that being able to interconnect across utilities for emergency backup purposes was really valuable. So like the example I usually use is like Duquesne power and light in, in Pittsburgh and say, Youngstown power you know, over in Ohio. If they could interconnect their systems and come up with some kind of a contractual arrangement where, you know, the Duquesne guy calls the Youngstown guy, you know, hey, can you send me um, 500 kilowatts at three o'clock? And the Youngstown guy is like, yeah, sure. Opens the, you know, boof, done. Um, and then there's a payment, right? And so they have, and and that relationship is the beginning of two important things. Number one, it's the foundation of what become power pools. And so mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania in particular, and in the mid-Atlantic, um, these utilities are coming up with these contractual arrangements to back each other up. And that improves reliability for their customers at much lower cost. And so the regulators like that too. Um, But number one, power pools. Um, And power pools become important because fast forward to 1996, that power pool in the mid-Atlantic becomes PJM. So those become the independent system operator, regional transmission organizations that now run wholesale power markets. But number two, that tra- that backup transaction between you know Duquesne and Youngstown crosses a state line, and so once you have something crossing a state line, then the Interstate Commerce Act, your know, um, you know portion of the Constitution kicks in, and there's all this you know no you know Constitution says no law can be made abridging commerce across the state lines, but once it crosses state lines, then the federal government can assert regulatory jurisdiction. Right. And so that's all kind of starting to build up in this really piecemeal way. And it is very kind of piecemeal MacGyver-ish. And one of the innovations, and I'm kind of putting air quotes around innovations, of the New Deal was to codify all these piecemeal MacGyver relationships and um, they got codified into the Federal Power Act of 1935 in the New Deal and that basically says okay um, the federal government has the right to regulate the bulk transmission of electricity to ensure that the prices charged are quote-unquote just and reasonable Uh, and of course just and reasonable are really excellently clearly quantitatively objectively defined concepts so so we've been living with that for almost 100 years and and, you know so you've got this federal jurisdiction but it also as a kind of side consequence kind of bakes in amber that vertically integrated model because in 1935 Mm -hmm nobody ever envisioned that what you all do in your entrepreneurial lives was even feasible you know they thought Mm -hmm. okay these vertically integrated utilities this is the way it's going to be and so we need to regulate them and we need to regulate them this way Um, so that's that's kind of the technology history gloss on the uh, federal power act But it it just basically enshrines in legislative and regulatory precedent, both regulatory practice and the utility business model.
0: I didn't exactly realize that, that the Federal Power Act gets sort of down that low um, in enshrining the utility business model.
1: It doesn't and and this is where you know i actually had a conversation after the panel in november with someone while we were getting lunch because the federal power act says nothing absolutely nothing to the states right you know so you know whatever the states do from a regulatory perspective is their is their responsibility that's their business the Federal Power Act does not direct the states to do or not do anything in particular mm-hmm. other than regulate this industry as you see fit. But it just says, okay, the federal jurisdiction is when stuff crosses state lines, mm-hmm. those prices have to be just and reasonable. Um, but it does serve as another force that reinforces the business model.
0: hmm what do you think would happen if we got rid of it?
1: <laughs> you want me to be a pink-haired punk again?
0: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm just curious because yeah, I've heard a few people like, say this.
3: Yeah, yeah guess, like, what I mean... is the Uber of energy? Because I always, like, wonder that <laughs> when you start dealing with, like, wires, right? Yeah, like, what, what is what the thing you that
1: think? you can... Yeah, Colleen, what do you think the Uber of energy is?
3: No, I always go to, like, physics means we can't have it right? Like you can just like throw a car in a road and connect someone, but you can't just like start rogue connecting wires to the grid. I mean, I guess off grid is the Uber of energy, right? Like,
1: um, and I, I apologize. Cause this is going to sound like I'm completely uh, sucking up to my hosts, but <laughs> my example, my example of the Uber for energy is usually a um like a, a Brownfield microgrid. You know, where you doing yeah. like some big old renovation or, you know, some building is coming down and, or, or maybe even a greenfield, right? So there, some place where there is no existing wires infrastructure and you come in and say, Hey, we can do this. And we can do this like a microgrid. Maybe we'll put one little inner tie to the distribution grid. And then, you know, you microgrid operator can contract with the utility for things like voltage support, frequency support, um black Star, you know grid services that you can provide to them and then because you've got just this limited inner tie you can just island off when it's best for you
2: yeah i mean i would i would even go a little further and this is something i wanted to ask you as well Lynn. is like i mean when i think of uber and also airbnb i think uber through, te- through software unlocked new, new taxi capacity that was previously unreachable. Um, and the same with Airbnb. It's like new hotel or new uh, lodging capacity. I think when you look at batteries and all sorts of different DERs, their new power plant capacity that is unlocked through software. Um, I think the difference is that the, the question I always come back to is given that we can build microgrids, is uh, the, is distribution infrastructure a natural monopoly? Um, and I'd love to hear your answer on it. Uh, I think I've asked you this before, but, um, the reason being like Uber still, like if you're getting in a a taxi, the function is to drive on a road to from point A to point B and you could say, okay, the power grid looks like public roads. But when you look at a microgrid, you're just like, the function is to consume the power at that, at that place. Uh, (laughs) You know, maybe when you talk about like uh, transferring that to other locations, um, you know, maybe you do need the power grid or or not. But that that's always what it comes back to is like, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, do you think that the that the power grid in the world of ders is a, is a natural monopoly still, in the same way that say like public roads would be?
1: And the the physicality of the the physicality of the transaction makes it hard right uh, unlike
3: mm-hmm.
1: say, wireless telephony right so wireless communication you know the the phone was uh, just game changer because of wireless because you know the ability to use spectrum um and we are living in tesla's world but we haven't quite tr- achieved tesla's dream of wireless electricity <laughs> transmission. um i keep holding out hope but Um, And from an economics perspective, I think the way to answer the natural monopoly question, you have to ask the question is, um, the the question of, are there things that can compete effectively with the distribution wires? Uh, Or to put it another way, more technically speaking, are the wires contestable? And, and so what competes with the wires? And I think the more you have things that can compete effectively and economically with the wires, the less the wires network is a natural monopoly.
2: So it's not even like a clean, it's not a black or white answer to you.
1: No, it's a continuum for sure. Um, I think we are a lot closer to that contestability than we were a decade ago. And, um, you know, I think it, it is likely to happen, but, um, you know, when I talk to or, or write something that is, is kind of speaking to utility executives, my question is always, well, if you, if you don't want to compete against DERs and you want to keep your customers who are on the grid, what do you think they want? What do you think would keep them as your customer? What what products and services can you offer Mm -hmm. that would keep them? And that's always been my argument for a platform business model. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that itself has a lot of complications and details to it of, if are if if the distribution utility is going to be a wires platform, are they going to just be a distribution system operator, um, or are they also going to be a market operator? And different people have different opinions about that. Um, you know, John Wellinghoff, who's a you know former FERC chair, who now does you know regulatory work with Voltas among other people. Uh, Wellinghoff's argument is that you know, arguing by analogy, I think, to what we see with RTOs, right, because the RTO is both the transmission operator and the market operator, and there are some real governance problems and some real conflicts of interest that arise because they do both of those and so wellinghoff argues that the distribution level that the wires utility should be a dso and that there should be a market operator that layers on top of that and of course you know it's a market layer on top of the physical layer and you need because of the because of the real time and you know sub 5 second nature of some of the operation of the grid you know you need to have those tight connections between the market operator and the dso um, but that's what, you know, digital technologies and automation and, you know, predictive machine learning models, all that stuff, stochastic operation of the grid, all makes that possible in ways that it wasn't even a decade ago.
0: Sometimes I wonder if even, even the future of the utility companies is is being constrained by all of this amber, right? If mm-hmm. you th- You mentioned wireless mm-hmm. telephony. In the U.S., who are the two biggest wire wireless providers? ATT and Verizon, the landline providers, mm-hmm. right? Um, does does this whole like construct actually really prevent you know National Grid and ConEd and others from developing like new products and services, maybe off of mm-hmm. what they currently have? Um, and it just sort of locks us all into this like strange competitive thing that's like fake (laughs) i don't know um it i i I always wonder that right like would would the unconstrained utility which somehow yeah was less responsible for all of those activities you just mentioned like the dso type stuff etc um actually wind up being maybe pretty good at uh you know building distributed infrastructure and and trading its power and stuff but in a non-monopolistic way um i don't know
2: well, the funny thing is on the Uber reference, is I was just talking to someone this about the other day, is like the taxi still exists. It's just drastically changed. Like, it, I think they're even booking taxis on Uber now sometimes. <laughs> so it's like it, Uber didn't replace taxis. It just changed the dynamics in that, like, uh, you could call it institution or whatever the price of a medallion was or what the power the lobby had, et cetera.
0: Um, yeah. And, and in the case of New York City, right, like every Uber still has a medallion. Uh, <laughs> right. But then, like, go to Philly, and it's just some guy with a car, right? <laughs> like, so it's it's sort of played out differently everywhere. Yeah,
1: I think. Um, it, and you know, to go back, James, to your comment that, uh, you know, Uber, you know, that, um, Uber taxi, they're both just you know cars driving on on public roads. I th- one other there there is some. Something that, um, and, and this is, is a very important thing in, in my field of economics, uh, which is industrial organization, um, there's an important thing that I think a lot of, that gets dismissed a lot of time in electricity and it shows up in, in that comparison and that is product differentiation, right? That there are some features, even though now, yeah, you can pre-schedule and pre-book a taxi, um, now, you know, you can actually book it on, on the an app or online and, and it'll actually show up unlike in the past when taxis <laughs> would often not show up at all when you call them. Um, so Uber gives you a higher, I'm going to put it in electricity terms, Uber and Lyft give you a higher degree of reliability. mm mm-hmm. And in many ways, give you a more, can give you a more secure, um, you know, cause yeah, sure. The, the, you know, taxi, the taxi driver has a license and the license is always posted in the car, but the, the Uber and Lyft apps give you more information and more accountability to which to hold the driver.
2: Yeah, well, six out of 10 times I get into a cab in Manhattan, say I'm going to Brooklyn, they say, get out of my cab. So I'm like, <laughs> they're like, no, my shift's ending. I can't take you. I'm like, well, what? I, I'm trying to support the yellow cab. I mean, what's going on here?
1: Yeah. <laughs> if you don't want my business, I'll call an Uber. <laughs>
2: That's right. Then I call an Uber. So,
1: And so I think a lot of people don't think, you know, I and, and this, the, I've got this kind of mental laundry list of. Concepts in electricity that are either already obsolete or becoming obsolete, and um, one of them is this idea that electricity is a commodity, right? Because it's just current, right? We're pushing current, and it's just electrons, right? And one electron looks just like another uh, from the point of view of the you know cold beer and warm showers. I flip the switch and the light goes on, right? but you know, you can, you can think in terms of electric service as a differentiated product in yeah. terms of reliability, uh, all kinds of stuff that, that I'm sure that you all have thought about in your, you know, in your business practice. And, and so I think that's an important shift in mindset is to think about the extent to which, um, you know, maybe the underlying current flow is itself commoditized, but that's never really been the only thing that's going on, right? Utilities have a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of other things they have to do Mm -hmm. historically to make that current flow salient and, and commercializable. And now because of technological change and falling transaction costs, other parties can come in and do those other things. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: well, who didn't? Was it Matt or was it Pierre that even challenged that power? Like was a commodity.
0: Matt, but from a Matt. very different angle. Yeah. yeah. Can um, we talk about?
2: I, we I, haven't I, talked as much. I mean, Duncan. I know you also in the in the doc you had it like a your your version of the utility. I don't know if we want to stay on this point at all, but I, I did want to get into the like pure Matt Lynn kind of, uh, <laughs> triangle and, and hear Lynn's thoughts on it, but
0: yeah, we should. I mean, yeah, Matt, Matt, I think sort of contested the status of electricity as a commodity, but from like a, with a very different like ends in mind um right that it's sort of like overly commoditized right um rather than thought of as like a well actually thought of as he would say as a service yeah um so i guess it's the same in many ways but it just produces different sort of conclusions depending on the the framework you're approaching it with
1: i think yeah the 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 ethos because i mean he he represents much more the ethos of public power and, um, again, having this the more kind of communitarian approach to it, and you know, the the there is an ethos of public power as, and and this is kind of grounded in a lot of the 19th century progressive movements, um and and which ultimately led to the formation of public utility commissions, but this concept of public services being offered in the public interest. And so that's how I interpreted really mm-hmm. where he's coming from. And um, yeah, I get to the I get to the services part, but from a the completely different direction of saying, they're providing a value proposition, a valuable service. So there's a mutually beneficial exchange potential, right? There's a win-win um, and, and, and that's another, another you know, just having to always remind people that, um, you know, what we're talking about here are positive sum games, positive, mm-hmm. positive sum situations. And so there's a win-win here, mutually beneficial. And if the provider of the electric service is doing something for you that you value and you are willing to pay them for that value, then you're both better off. And so that's a transaction that should be mutually agreeable and voluntary. Um, so that doesn't involve any concept of the public interest. Mm. of course where does my kind of sparse economics framing of that sort of hit the wall it hits the wall in the sense that we are all doing this on a shared network Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and you know so matt's gonna say well it's a shared network so that's part of this you know public service is providing a service to all and that um you know his concept of and I'm going to call it an egalitarian concept of of justice in this situation is that all people should have access to this service, have equal access to this service. Um, and there we agree, right? That, but I think where we would part ways is I would look at the fact that it's a all we all are on this shared network. Um, and I would look at the shared network as a common pool resource and say, well, you know, it's, it, this is a la Eleanor Ostrom. This is a common pool resource. And that means it's going to be really hard for us to exclude people. It's hard to define property rights, but at the same time, we can all maybe, you know, use it, but, but if we don't coordinate how we use it, we might overuse it right it'll get congested mm-hmm. if we all try to use it if we all plug our teslas in at the same time then you know the transformer's going to blow that kind of thing so we have to coordinate our use of this shared resource and what's the best way to coordinate that it's through markets and and transactions yeah. so that's where i think we would we would come to a different a different interpretation or understanding of what that shared network means.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think his problem with the commoditization is, is like the markets themselves. I think he actually cares less about like the IOUs existence, um, but, but is displeased with the inability to plan when, when the wholesale power provision is, is Mm -hmm. market-based.
1: And, and, you know, one one concern that I have about that desire to plan in a vertically integrated setting is that that uh, forecloses a whole lot of innovation. Yeah, because planning planning necessitates stipulating characteristics of what's going to happen, where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and Uh, especially the what's going to happen when that gets constrained you really foreclose you you really are throwing up a lot of barriers to innovation you foreclose a lot of Uh,
3: and I do wonder if that's sometimes why you get both because that sort of the two sides are like almost going after the same thing whereas right now what we have is a lot of coordination and planning at different levels which makes it even harder right because you're always trying to like make sure everyone's in alignment and people do things different ways and so like one way to solve that is to go like total free market let prices sort things out let innovation happen and the other way is to say let's go the total opposite way and we can bring in innovation in certain ways um but at least then it's like all at one level right Mm -hmm. so then you can kind of like allow for for variables to come into a new way. Whereas right now utilities might want to innovate, but then they're stuck within constructs of like how they're regulated. And so there's a lot of, and then slow changing that takes time. And so there's almost like the current system has a lot of friction built in for certain reasons. And you can go like full one way and eliminate friction in some capacity or full the other way and eliminate it.
1: One thing, and since I mentioned Eleanor Ostrom, I will uh, give her another shout out and say one of the insights that we get from from Ostrom's study of um, common pool resources and the question of governance institutions, right? How do we, if we're going to if we're going to solve what she called social dilemmas, if we're going to solve the the social dilemmas that arise because we're sharing, we're sharing a resource. In this case, we're sharing a wires network. Um, one thing, especially when you think of how complex the electric systems are, right? So we've got you know everything from, you know, behind the meter to the meter to the transformer to the substations, you know, the distribution network, and then you go up to the kind of substations that connect you to the bulk power system, and then you get all the transmission infrastructure. And so it's such a complex layered network that um, her argument for such complex systems was that your institutions had to be what she called polycentric. Mm. And so as opposed to just having... You know one regulator to rule them all right (laughs) you, you want to have yeah in most of her work you know her formative work was in doing things like studying how uh villages in cambodia villagers living in a village in cambodia would figure out ways to govern their shared use of an irrigation network and, you know, the water levels would fluctuate over year, season to season, and definitely from year to year. Um, so how do you deal with that? And uh, so you have that kind of community bottom-up self-governance when whatever governance social dilemma they're trying to solve is very local, you can do that in a very community self-governance way. But as you get further and further up and more and more anonymity and more and more heterogeneity of people and heterogeneity of types of users you want to have different types of governance
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you know i'm i'm down with the kind of layered nature of our governance institutions although i think you know there's room for improvement within and across how they how they actually operate yeah
2: It reminds me of uh, what the like the James Burnham perspective and and the Machiavellians on um, actually like the most just societies are those with the highest degree of competing strong uh, bodies, (laughs) meaning like when the arts are strong, science is strong, business, government, you know, everything. And when we're actually like clashing vigorously is when you get the most balanced, like just system they are
1: undervailing um, forces.
2: That's right, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, you know, and that 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 is one thing. And then the other thing that struck me that you mentioned, and it is sort of what I always come back to, is just like in a complex system, how much better uh, outcomes, or or sort of like the there's so much information that it like it, the the emergent outcomes uh, are allocate resources better than, than sort of the central planning model. Um, So the more complex the system becomes, the more, um, the easier it becomes, or the the better sort of outcomes you get from that like distributed behavior. Um, Interestingly though, Matt, uh, although we didn't really talk about it, I think he said in a complex system you want central planning. So I was, I want to, I want to talk to him more about that um, yeah. because it's, it sort of flies in the face of, of sort of uh, what I've thought uh, about like information coordination in the past. But um, yeah, my
1: concern about that is that having, having simple planning in a complex system, simple planning in a complex system is that it, it tends to be kind of monolithic. And the nice thing about a polycentric governance system is it kind of respects the organic nature of the system. So mm-hmm. you know, I tend to think of the grid, the analog, the biological analog to the grid for me is a willow tree or, or a bridge mm. that you've engineered, right? If you engineer it too tight, it's going to break. Yeah. Um, but a willow tree or a well-engineered bridge is going to flow with the changes and that's my concern about centralized planning but um a great example James of what you just said is is some of the disruption this is some of the distortion that we see um you know and here I probably part ways with with some of the DER community but um is the effect that the um Tact that subsidies have on distorting outcomes and in particular the PTC and the ITC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you know, the, the fact that at this point in particular wind, you know, wind is such a mature technology. And if you mm-hmm. look at its, you know, think about its S curve, it's a mature technology. Yeah. And yet in the IRA we had the extension of the PTC for wind and there's there's no good economic justification for that, I think. And mm-hmm. it causes such distortion in organized wholesale power markets and it really disrupts that information dynamic that yeah. you mentioned.
2: Well, I also wonder, I mean, I've started trying to think about this a lot more is that in the sort of like, honestly, neoliberal f- framework since the 70s, um, Matt's argument would be that if you sort of uh, like uh, liberalize in a sense or make the market open, that what you're actually doing is allowing, like you're gonna end up with duopolies and concentrations of power within that market. But then when you look at say like the physical aspects of uh, restaurants and uh, like plumbers and stuff, there's plenty of business models that are not, uh, do not lead to like aggregated power. Um, and I don't know how to really square that yet. And, uh, like with respect to the grid, like would sort of making, uh, this hyper price model lead to s- some new aggregation and centralization of power. That's outside of you're sort of choosing between like mm-hmm. a, a company being the, the one in power or like a government and a regulator. Right. Is, but is that a fake choice? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I think it's been true think... the last 50 years, but, but maybe yeah. in certain instances it's not.
1: I do think it's a false choice, and and I do think that that flattening distinctions between into just public versus private um, loses some of the important focus on on governance and mm-hmm. you know the fact that we are doing stuff in a shared resource we have to think about governance. But mm-hmm. um, but one thing that that your comment made me think about is. Um, I'm going to long pause here so you can edit out the fact that I lost my train of thought.
2: (laughs) No, we're keeping
1: it. Uh, (laughs) um, Is, is just, no, I'm sorry. Can you repeat what you said?
2: Basically that this like false dichotomy between power will central, will aggregate into a public institution or a private one. And, and Matt would say, I prefer the public one because, at the very least they have a promise to the, to the public to serve them.
1: And, and, and
2: acknowledging that obviously there's plenty of corruption in some public systems. Right. uh, And
1: acknowledging that in both public and private systems, there's lots of trade-offs. Yes. So um, one thing I would, I would argue as a benefit for, uh, or or one of the trade-offs, one of the costs of the more planning oriented public system is that you get that rigidity, that kind of technological and institutional sclerosis and you don't necessarily adapt in or create new things in ways that will value um, the the you know value create value for consumers uh, create entrepreneurial opportunities for folks like you um, and here I think I like to use Schumpeter's focus you know perennial gale of creative destruction on you know it's not, competition in the market it's competition for the market and Mm -hmm. so if the barriers to innovation and barriers to entry are low enough then that can attenuate some of that concentration Mm -hmm. but the concentration kind of happens and then it's that's kind of the bait for the entrepreneurs and Mm -hmm. then that comes in and, and dissolves the dissolves the power
2: yeah i certainly uh view the kind of order and chaos turnover like Taoist cyclical nature of institutions and their inevitable decay. So I don't know. Maybe whether it's public or private, that's that's gonna you get this brief moment of uh balance <laughs> before uh the cycle starts again. Um but uh I mean I know I I know we're right I think you have a hard stop. Yeah, um yeah I a, Duncan I'm I sorry for meeting dominating the the end here. No, we're but, good. We're good. I did want to. There's one thing that I had to put out there because you haven't listened to the podcast yet, but I made Pierre choose if he would go with sort of your model of the grid or Matt's because he seems to sort of stick in the middle. Between, yeah. And he chose Matt's. uh, That if you know he likes the utility model, he likes that we can bring capital in in that model. However, if he had to choose, he would choose like the government doing it instead. So. Mm There's not a real, I guess, is there anything you have to say to Pierre uh, in this? <laughs> um, I,
1: I, I would. Encourage- he said it would
2: keep him up at night, by the way. He yeah. was very, uh, very torn that he had to say I, that. I'm, but- yeah, I'm
1: not surprised yeah. he's torn. And I think yeah. the the thing that I would encourage him to think about is essentially the, the epistemology, right? The knowledge generation and the knowledge content that you get. In a price system, mm-hmm. and that's what really, when combined with low barriers to entry, gives you innovation and gives you, you know, creative people coming up with new ideas, you know, trying to captivate consumers, and right. um, and that's I think one of the most important dynamics in human history for for creating our ability to flourish.
2: I I mean I don't do we have a better place to end Duncan? I think that's
1: got to end on flourishing. Always <laughs> always end, once you go Aristotelian it's time to go home.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it I think that's a perfect end note. Uh Lynn, I do want to send you some ideas I have or questions I have really, but mm-hmm. I have this big question about why we ever really needed the monopoly in the first place even with the goals of socialization and a single distribution network but for another time um yes. this was super fun we can do thanks. we
1: can do an entire like history of utilities and regulation oh, chat man. if you want at some point I'm i am totally game for that,
2: that i think we fun, do that yeah. one at cocktail hour next
0: time <laughs> all righty well thanks for joining us lynn this was this was super fun
1: Thank you for uh, inviting me. I love talking to you guys. This so Thank much Thank you, Lynn. All right. I'll talk to you later.
0: Queen, of, queen
2: yeah. of Power Markets. Uh, queen of Power Markets. Hopefully I will survive. retain the crown. Retained.
0: <laughs> and survived the Thunderdome.
2: <laughs> Bye, Lynn. Yeah. Bye.
0: Bye-bye.